If you would, turn with me in your Bible to Matthew 4, starting in verse 12. I'm glad you came to be with us today. I'm thankful uh, that you take a risk to be with us. Uh, Sometimes as a pastor, it feels like a risk to come on a Sunday too, so I can understand that feeling, if you feel that. Uh, Jesus, though, is something that I've found worth things like this. And he's the one we're looking to. Why is Jesus important? Why does he matter today? That's what we're asking together. I'm going to take a sip of coffee, and I'm going to think about that, and then I'll get back to it. Thank you. I think my voice will will keep going now for a minute. Why does Jesus matter today? As we think about that question and look at this passage, we're going to see that Jesus brings the light of heaven to our darkness, to our very real darkness. I think of the first year that I was in ministry, I remember looking out the window because we heard noise. There was yelling in the street. Our front window faced the street, uh, north-south street there in Sparta. And we look out and we see a man who's in a wheelchair and he's, he's yelling. He's yelling, help, over and over again, help. So I walk out there. He's in the middle of the street in his wheelchair. And I find this man. He's very upset. He's apparently asked for help from a number of different places and didn't find help he needed. So something that would happen in southern Illinois where I was, people who were vagrant, who didn't have a place to stay, police oftentimes would graciously take somebody like that to the next county because not every county had the right social services, had homeless shelters and things like that. And so he was making his way towards a homeless shelter that was still another county away, and he needed just a place to stay that night until he could get the next ride uh, with an officer to go to the next county. And so uh, there he is. He's run out of money from his government card that he had. And so I say, well, this is something that we can help you with. And so we, we put him up for one night at a motel locally, get him some food. I come to him the next morning, and I visit this man. And I experience something that I hadn't experienced yet in my life. I was sitting in a room with a man who was on a methamphetamine trip. And he was very, uh, you could tell he was guilty uh, for this. He felt upset with himself. And he expresses that to me as a pastor that I'm sorry. He called me father because that was his experience of pastors were priests who you call father. So he says, I'm sorry, father. Um, and I'm on, I'm on methamphetamine. And I remember just sitting with him in that room and having the opportunity to pray with him and to tell him that, and I, and I really believe this is true, that the fact that in God's kindness, the churches of Sparta were able to give him a night's stay and a little bit of food. This was a sign to him that God had not quit on him. God was not done with him. Even on methamphetamine, this isn't the end for you. The Lord would still call you to himself. He would still offer his grace to you. And I would pray with this man, and then at some point later that day or the next, he hopped in a car and went to the next county. I never saw him again, but He was a man who lived in a very deep cloud of darkness. He was disabled. He could not walk. He was in constant pain. He'd been cast out by his family. They wanted nothing to do with him. Family separation. And yet, 
I believe the Lord would reach into that very real kind of darkness. Do you know right here in the state of Colorado, I found this from the Aspen Ridge Recovery Center, just a one-year-old article they published that the state of Colorado has the highest rate of deaths by overdose of all of the 50 states. The most common culprits being prescription painkillers, Percocet, Oxycontin. And some of you may have known this. This may be part of your story, maybe even today. Some of you who experience chronic pain and you're looking for a little bit of light, you're looking for the, that grip to lessen on you and you look to that for, for hope. Some of you have seen drugs divide a family, split a family, result in someone being cast off so they're not welcome anymore at family get-togethers. You've seen the very real damage that addiction does, whether it was in your life or family, in your workplace, in your school. It's darkness. And it's very hard to get out of. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, we see going to that kind of darkness, going to very, very lost people who need help. Jesus is a light. And he was a light in fulfillment of a, of a hoped-for light because God's people had been dwelling in darkness since the days of Isaiah. What kind of darkness was it? What was the darkness that Jesus came to address with his light? Well, in Isaiah, at the beginning of our English Bibles, it's Isaiah chapter 9, and in your Hebrew Bible, it's the end of chapter 8. That darkness in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, it's, it's described in these ways. If you want to go back, you can read Isaiah 8 later today. You'll see that they had a darkened view of truth. They were confused about truth. The Lord said to his people, don't call conspiracy, what they call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. They were afraid. They had mixed messages coming from leaders. They were confused. That's something I think we know about in the 21st century as well. We've experienced that. A people confused, darkened with misinformation. Don't fear what they fear. Don't call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. The Lord shall be your fear, and he you shall regard as holy. There was spiritual confusion. They were turning to things like necromancers. Now, if you're not uh, someone who's into Dungeons and Dragons, you may not know much about that, but in uh, world history and around the world, even today, necromancers are people who seek to commune with the dead and communicate with the dead to raise the spirits of the dead. And God's people turned to those sorts of sorts, those sources of spiritual comfort to hear from ancestors or things like this to try to shed light on their paths when they were in darkness. And that's where God's people were going. There was hunger in Isaiah 8.21. People didn't have enough. You need to remember this about the context that we're reading about. When Jesus gave the prayer, give us today our daily bread, it was to a people who actually prayed that prayer and meant it. Give us today our daily bread. Because even fishermen, a good and noble profession, profession, even if you owned your boat and your nets, you're looking at a few days of security. And for those who didn't own the boats and the nets, 
It was for today. They were looking to the Lord for today, and hunger could be a very real darkness. Gloom, anguish. And we see some of that gloom that Jesus came and looked face to face with at the end of chapter four as he went around Galilee. All the sick, those afflicted with various diseases, with pains. In the original language, it, there's, a, there's a verb there that's, that's something like being held with pains, being in the clutches of pain. It's like chronic pain that won't go away, that seizes you and won't let go. And Jesus looks to these people, looks in their eyes, those oppressed by demons, those with seizures, epileptics, with some with mental disabilities, paralytics. And what does he do? He healed them. In fact, we see that the pattern of Jesus' ministry would always include this. What did Jesus do? He would teach in synagogues, proclaim the gospel, and he would heal. Healing and proclamation. That was the shape of his discipleship and of his ministry. And he came to offer this to sinners. That's the real darkness. Jesus was called Jesus. Why? Because he would save his people from their sins. His name comes from the Hebrew word uh, that means to save or savior. But not only save them from their own sins, but also give them the hope of a world that no longer is under the weight and the cloud of sin and fallenness. And heaven would break in with Jesus and show us a picture of that healing and wholeness that heaven will one day offer the whole world. Why does Jesus matter today? It's because he offers us the light of heaven in our very darkness. But the first step that we're called to in this passage in response is to turn and follow him. What did Jesus say in chapter four, verse 17? He repeated the words of John the baptizer and he said, repent. And remember, he said he began to preach. So he said this often. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It could even be rendered, it has arrived because it really had arrived in Jesus. The kingdom of heaven was right there. Repent. Remember in chapter three, we talked about repent. It means to turn to turn. The idea is that we're like a ship at sea and we veer off course every day, every moment, and we're called to turn, to be turning. It's not a do it once kind of a verb. It's an ongoing, durative command. Keep turning. Turn. Be turning to the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus goes and says this in a place that many of us, if we were among the Jewish religious elites, we would have disregarded them. R.T. France, a New Testament theologian and commentator who's gone on to be with the Lord, uh, he wrote that the area around Galilee was a mix of conservative Jewish areas next door to largely pagan cities. So there's a mixture of people up here. It was separated, Galilee was, from Jerusalem and Judea by Samaria and by areas like the Decapolis, which were full of Gentiles, other than Jewish people, people who would participate in the Roman cult. And so they were on the wrong side of the ancient railroad tracks. As a matter of fact, people in the south of 
Judea and in Jerusalem were likely to relate to people in the north as sort of country bumpkins, country cousins. There was a different dialect spoken in the north, and it was noticeable. You know how sometimes, uh, if we're not careful, we can cast a sideways glance at someone who has a different accent than us, perhaps look down upon them because we talk right, you know? We're the ones who talk right. But uh, you know how that can be. People in Galilee would experience that. And Jesus was coming in their midst, in the midst of real darkness, and calling them to follow him. We're going to see how he did this with, with Peter, with Andrew. We're going to see how he did this with James and with John in a moment, calling them out of family systems, calling them out of the comforts offered by wealth and good business. I think of my friends, uh, Ahmed and Asil. They are Iraqi Christians who became refugees in the fall uh, of Iraq uh, with Saddam Hussein's fall in the 2000s. And so they fled to the United States. Many of their extended family members would as well. But most of their extended family members did not convert from Islam to Christianity. And so... Their Christianity was a real risk for them. They came to worship at the church where I worshiped in South St. Louis, which was such a blessing to get to know them, to see their faith. One story I remember of a seal is she was pregnant. Uh, and as she was growing very uh, with child, uh, our church threw uh, you know, showers for her and things like this and tried to bless her. Well, one day... Some of her extended family says they're going to come over to her house, so she's ready for them. Ahmed was at work. And when they came, they pulled her out of the door, and they threw her on the ground, and they're shouting at her for betraying their family and betraying the faith. You can imagine the the fear for her baby's life, the fear for her life. This is her extended family. Following Jesus meant losing their love, their support. But they would continue to come to worship. They would continue to come and teach very comfortable middle-class white people like me what risk is for Jesus And they would turn to Jesus, even when the darkness was closing in around them. And when you think about Peter and Andrew and James and John, there was certainly some of that costliness. And sometimes we might focus on the costliness of the choice to turn and follow Jesus. Today, I want to focus not only on that, though, but what would make them turn to him? Why would they do that? When, they find, when Jesus found Peter and Andrew casting a net into the sea, these fishermen, he said to them, verse 19, follow me, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. John chapter 1 shows us that there were at least a few more conversations that went on, perhaps before this moment. Nevertheless, they don't know a lot about Jesus, but there's something about Jesus 
John the baptizer had said about Jesus when his disciples were around, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There was a hope when they saw Jesus. There was, there was something compelling, something beautiful, something true and good, something they longed for. There was true light, and the darkness wasn't overcoming it. And so they turned and left their nets, and they followed him. Zebedee and John, James of Zebedee and John, his brother, they were in the boat with their dad. Some of you have been a part of family businesses. You've worked with your dad. You've worked with your mom. Well, Jesus came to the family business, finds the brothers, calls them to follow him, and they leave dad in the boat. Now, I want to just acknowledge something for a second. And this is why I'm not merely focusing on the, the cost of their faith, the cost of their turning to him, because you need to realize it's not impressive in and of itself to turn and follow a Near Eastern itinerant preacher who tells you to follow him, right? It's probably a bad idea, generally speaking. You should probably keep your job, you know, take care of your family, your responsibilities, your priorities. But it, the thing about this situation is it's not their faith, that's on display. It's the worthiness of Jesus. He's worth turning to. He's worth risking your relationship with your dad. Many of us as Christians, many people who are considering Jesus are looking at Jesus and they're counting that cost because following Jesus will put a bit of a wrench in the family system. Following Jesus will mean I have an allegiance that's deeper than blood. My last name isn't the thing that gives me value and worth. But looking to God in Jesus. And when we're Christians and when we're neighbors considering Christ, we have moments where we count the cost because middle-class comfort, that which is afforded by good business, good work. Sometimes Jesus calls us out of the comforts to share for his kingdom, to not be as comfortable as we might otherwise be. Teresa Morgan, an ancient historian, she teaches at Oxford in England. She, she comments about the wonder of Christian love in a survival world. This is a survival world that we're talking about where people don't have the social safety net. And the thing about early Christianity is that they were willing, when they only had bread for today, to give their bread for today to a neighbor who needed it. They're willing to leave the comforts promised by wealth to follow Jesus even to the darkest places. And it wasn't because they were awesome, it's because Jesus was, and they had seen him. They knew him, and he had come into their darkness. Today, I'm inviting you to take a step. Perhaps you've taken that step before, but I'm inviting you to turn again, to turn anew to Jesus, to let him call you out of middle-class comfort, to let him call you out of 
the, the comfort of a family system that you don't want to rock the boat, and to follow Jesus in a small way. I don't know what that may look like for you. Whether it means something like in Leviticus where you, you look to the edges of your field and you leave it for the poor, trying to find margin and edges in our middle-class ability to seek comfort so that we could bless others. Or whether that would be something like in a family system, taking a risk to talk to dad about Jesus and what he's done in my life. Look to the Lord and ask him what it is that Jesus would call you to follow him. But if we follow Jesus, the thing that we will find is that his light goes to places we may not want to go. As we've already said, his light came from Galilee, (laughs) from the wrong side of the railroad tracks. And there, he addressed the very real darkness. He faced it head on. Some of our neighbors wonder whether Christianity is good for the world. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned the quote that some people think Christians are so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. You remember that quote, perhaps. Maybe you've heard it or said it yourself. Many of our neighbors feel that way about Christianity, that it's no good for the world. That we offer God words, Bible band-aids to people who are suffering. But that's not what I see in Jesus. And believe it or not, it's not the story of Christianity overall. Did you know? That because of the shape of Jesus' ministry and his discipleship, from an early time, Christians would care for their neighbors. And early, Christians began to start serving their sick neighbors with hospitals. And soon, within centuries, that would organize into hospital movements. Modern medicine modern hospitals, modern universities are a product of Christian love for truth and love for neighbors and their love for their Savior who came preaching and healing. Some Christians get nervous when we think about Jesus not only preaching and saying God words but also healing. There's this sort of divide There's one part of Jesus that's comfortable and there's one part of Jesus that we're not comfortable with. Jesus can heal with a word. We can't. It takes time. But as soon as we start focusing on serving neighbor and their material needs, some people might associate that perhaps with liberal Christianity or perhaps with word of faith movements and different things like this. But I'm just saying this is what Jesus did and this is what the church has historically sought to do in obedience is to care for our neighbors who are suffering. If you haven't faced a real suffering person, um, Jesus would invite you to follow his light. Some of the people who I think are some of the most brave and strong individuals are people who have cared for their parents, people who have cared for their neighbors, their elderly church, friends and neighbors who have been facing death. And you've walked through those seasons. You've seen chronic pain. You've seen cancer. You've seen Alzheimer's. You've seen Parkinson's. You've seen them take their toll. Healthcare workers see this up close. 
Jesus would come in the midst and care for these. He would care for those with broken minds, those who were, it looks like, moonstruck in the original language, epileptics, those suffering from seizures. Jesus would come in their midst. And if this is where Jesus' light would go, the challenge, one of the challenges for us, a church with budget and strategic vision and things like this, is we have to realize that some of the measures of ministry success that we may have need to be corrected by Jesus' kingdom. We need to repent in what we value. Because Jesus doesn't value those who are necessarily efficient for his kingdom. Think about this. If he would call you to follow him to the least, you can read Matthew 25 later and see Jesus' stark challenge for believers in this regard. If we would follow Jesus in this way, we will find that he is not concerned about using people as a means to build some mega something. He is reaching into darkness in love, which is an inefficient use of time if you're concerned with efficiency because it's a lot of backwards. It's a, it's a step forwards and then it's like nine steps backwards and then it might be a half step forward and then it's eight steps backwards. And then, you know, dealing with addiction recovery, dealing with people who are struggling, who are dying, who are in the clutches of pain, people with mental disabilities. We're not talking about necessarily the thing that's going to, to catalyze the kingdom building. But Jesus' kingdom values these. And so efficiency can't be the highest value. It needs to go down a little bit in the kingdom. Secondly, the value of respectability That's the adult version of high school popularity. Jesus, you'll recall in Matthew 11, is called a glutton and a drunkard. Why? Why was he called a glutton and a drunkard? It's because he hung out with gluttons and drunkards. He was willing to be misunderstood. He was willing to go to the center of darkness, to sit in a room with a person on a methamphetamine trip and offer them the hope of eternal salvation the hope of his gospel that he was bringing, hope of healing, hope of relationship with God, hope of purpose. And so he lost his respectability with the religious insiders. He would lose the, the, the high school popularity contest. And so we have to be willing, like Jesus standing with the woman caught in adultery, to be willing to be misunderstood and stand with our neighbors and say, the kingdom of heaven is here and it's for you. Jesus came for you and even for me. He hasn't quit on you. And when other people say that he's quit on you, we'll we'll stand in the middle and defend you. And we'll take our licks because Jesus is worth it. Some of us will struggle with this a lot. The notion, particularly, of following Jesus' light 
into the very real darkness of our neighbor's life, of our family's life, and thinking about where that is and inhabiting that difficulty, that awkwardness. We're gonna struggle with that, but I want you to think about when Jesus came to you, and maybe that's even today, Jesus coming to you. He's calling you and he hasn't quit on you. And think about it today, are are you an efficient use of Jesus's time? Are you the thing that's going to catalyze his kingdom building movement and take him to the next level? Am I? (laughs) Are you the thing that will make him more respectable, more popular? I'm not. (laughs) I'm a mess. If you knew me like Christina knew me, like the Lord knows me. But the Lord is kind, and he would come into your life, into your darkness, mess that it is, and he would offer you hope, eternal salvation. He would go to the point of death on a cross to reclaim you, to restore you. I was a a jerk as a teenager. Uh, When I was in high school, I was one of those kids, uh, I'm ashamed to say it, who was mean to other kids, who who would make fun of others. I was, I was a kid who was mean to my parents. I, I was dishonest with my parents. I would take things. I, was, I, was, I wasn't a great kid. I was by no means worthy of the Lord's attention. Not entitled to the air that I breathed, but the Lord came and he reached me one night at a youth group that I didn't really want to go to. And Jesus would would reach you. And if he has, I'm just inviting you to see him again, to see how worthy he is of following, wherever he would lead us. Turn to him today. That's the invitation. And if you feel like you wouldn't be welcome in a Christian community, you feel like you don't know how you could take a step into church with you know, people that wear sweaters and collars, things like that. If that's you, just know the Lord Jesus welcomes you and we welcome you. And you know, underneath anything we wear is a mess. There's darkness that needs to be addressed with the light of the gospel and that's why we're here. We're here because we are a mess. And you're welcome to come with us and look to Jesus. So the invitation of Jesus The reason he matters today is he brings the light of heaven to our darkness. And I just invite you to turn to him and receive that anew right now. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, turn. We turn to you, Lord, and we long to see you clearly. We long to know you. We long to follow you. We want to be a part of your kingdom, of your vision for this world of healing and hope right to the depth, to the core of our being. So, Lord, we, in our human way, in the way that we can, we're we're trying to turn ourselves to you, Lord, by your grace, by your spirit, Lord. Would you reach us now? Take hold of us. We, We need you. 
We thank you that you've offered yourself freely. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.